The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Uh, Father, thank you for the new year. Thank you for time. Thank you that every day is a gift from you. And uh, as we have a cycle of seasons, a cycle of holidays and New Year's, Lord, it's a chance for us to take stock and realize why we're alive, what time is for, uh, Lord. We're here to serve you. We're here to glorify you. That uh, we're here first and foremost to find Christ as our Lord and Savior, or really be found by him and have our sins forgiven that we might spend eternity uh, in heaven with you. And we're here also, having come to Christ, to serve you with every, every day of our lives, with our spiritual gifts, and that we would make the most of every opportunity. Lord, I thank you for this particular class, the, stu- the study that we're doing now on Christian contentment. I just pray that you would give me grace uh, to speak well, all of us to talk together in ways that are helpful. Uh, so thank you for this time to study and for the chance we have to be together. We pray for those that are still traveling, get them here safely. Thank you for heat this morning, for walls that keep us warm, and uh, I just pray that we make the most of this day, not just now, but as we go to corporate worship in a little while to to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I hope all of you got a handout um, week four uh, as we're looking at Christian contentment. And continuing to use Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, as a guide, Uh, I don't feel enslaved to it, um, but I think it's been helpful for me, and I think week by week we're going to spin off on some other topics that are related to Christian contentment, but uh, this week we're going to just step to the next topic uh, that Burroughs gives us. But I want to begin just, it's been a few weeks, um, for us to go back and look by way of review at some of the things that we've covered, and then we'll be able to get a running start. Hey, Topher, how are you? I'm so excited you're going to read scripture this morning. Are you ready? I'm so excited to read it. Revelation 16. Oh my goodness, what a chapter. That's incredible. So thank you, brother, for that. Looking forward to that. All right, so um, just by way of review, this, uh, this study that we're doing in this class is on Christian contentment. What do you remember about Christian contentment? Anybody want to share anything? I'm throwing it open. I like give and take. All right. What is Christian contentment? Don't look at the definition. We're going to walk through that. All right. But just put it in your own words. A difficult way of living. All right. It's hard to do, for sure. All right. Anyone else? It's a secret. It's a secret, something to be learned. We're going to talk a little more about that this morning. All right. How would you define it? What is it? Put it in your own words. Yeah, I love that. A combina- there's a combination of joy and peace. There's a peacefulness and contentment and a happiness and contentment. Those two things t- together. Um, but you related it to God's will. So that's a good, simple definition of it, for sure. All right, well, we began the study looking at, obviously, Philippians chapter 4. If you were going to go anywhere in the Bible to try to begin a study on Christian contentment, I would commend Philippians chapter 4 to you. And there the Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippian church. Uh, That particular part of his epistle, he's thanking them for money that they sent. He's in prison. So we talked a lot that first week about Paul's credentials and talking about Christian contentment. Um, We could imagine... You know, unless you were really mature and you're thinking about Christian contentment, you would say, all right, uh, Solomon at the peak of his glory, I don't feel like I could learn a lot from him on Christian contentment because I don't think I'm ever going to be as rich as him or powerful as him or have everything I want like him. Um, Now, we know that things aren't what they appear. So you do need to learn how to be content when prospering in in a biblical way. But somebody like Paul, who has such extreme sufferings, more than we can possibly imagine, more than we even know anybody. Probably in all of church history, in 20th century church history, we don't know anybody that suffered for Christ as much as the Apostle Paul. Nobody. So he's at the head of the class in Christian suffering. Uh, the, the beatings he received, the imprisonments, the, the riots he started, for goodness sake. Incredible, difficult, hard life. And here he is again in prison. And uh, he's philosophical, people could say about that. He's meditating in a Christian way about his imprisonment, talking about how it's actually served to advance the gospel, and he's sharing the gospel with other guards, and, and people in, in Caesar's palace are coming to Christ. 
and uh, people outside are bolder now because I'm in prison, actually, and it's actually serving to advance the gospel. And, and then he goes on in Philippians 1 saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What an incredibly healthy way of looking at both life and death. You can't, you can't have a healthier way of looking at life and death than Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's how I want to look at my life and my death. I am happy to live, I'm happier to die. And that doesn't mean I'm suicidal. Not at all. But I really am. I mean, if the Lord takes me, I'll be delighted. It's better by far for me. But it's more beneficial for everyone else that I remain. Now, stop for just a moment. Make sure that's true. All right? <laughs> Let me just tell you. Make sure it's true that it's more beneficial for the people who know you that you stay alive. I mean, there is a tragic king in Israel's history who it says of him, he died to no one's regret and was buried, but not in the tombs of his fathers. I forget his name. Well, I think we should forget his name. Um, but it's written down, and we, we can find out what his name is. But what does that mean to you? He died to no one's regret. What does that say about that man? Nobody liked him. <laughs> uh, let's put it mildly. He wasn't a blessing. It was not a blessing to be in his presence. Now, let me just click right back into the topic of Christian contentment. If you actually learn and live out Christian contentment, you will be a blessing to the people around you. This is a very discontent world, and it's especially discontent age we're living in. You will be a rarity. And if you could learn this secret, you will be a consistent blessing to the people around you. But Paul said in Philippians 1, it's better, by, better for you that I remain in the body. And I think that's exactly what is going to happen. I'm going to continue and I'm going to serve you for your progress and joy in the faith. Philippians 1. Well, I could go through the whole book again. But he gets, uh, Philippians 4, he gets to the end and he's thanking them for the money. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Thank you for the money. That's what he's saying. He said, not that I'm looking for the gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the money. He said, now, I want you to understand. It'd be very, very easy for you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Oh, you were very depressed before the money came. And now that the money came, you're really happy. Wrong. Effectively, he's saying, I was fine in Christ before the money came. And I will be fine in Christ after it's spent. And I'm fine in Christ now that I have it and I haven't spent it yet. The money is not the source of my happiness and peace. Not at all. Because actually, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situ situation. Whether well, well-fed or hungry, whether they're living in, in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So that's Philippians chapter 4. Remember what we learned about the word contentment. Let me say it again. The word he uses there is self-sufficiency. It's a word that we could easily misunderstand. We are not thinking like pagans. We're not thinking like non-Christians. Self-sufficiency really means in the whole, whole uh, system of theology that Paul teaches, God-sufficiency. Having God, having Christ, he doesn't need any created thing. He doesn't need any creature. He doesn't need any created thing at all. And even if you push back and say, yes, but you need air, you need water, you need food. Actually, I don't because I don't need to live. We already covered that. But if I do live, then yes, if the Lord wills for me to live, then he'll have to give me air first off and he'll have to give me water secondarily and then food thirdly. And then after that, a bunch of other things like protection from four degree weather. Amen. <laughs> Warm jacket, probably pretty helpful. All right. Heat. Aren't you glad the HVAC worked this morning? All right, let's not take it for granted. We've had some cold days. I remember we had a members meeting years ago where it was like eight degrees warmer than outside. That was one of the shortest member meetings we've ever had. People were very, very efficient. I remember that. Very quick. All in favor. Aye. Amen. Go. <laughs> we were done quickly. Well, we don't want to do that. Anyway, we're blessed with that. These are helpful things, but we don't have to have them. You have to have Christ. You have to have a savior. You have to have a mediator. You have to have sustaining grace from him, but you don't need any created thing. And the more you believe that, the happier you will be. And so we're going to unfold that, but that's what he means by contentment. It's self-sufficiency. But a simpler definition Rosemary gave it. It's just a combination of peaceful joy 
that's independent of circumstances. It's resting in the will of God. That's what we're talking about here. So we get, we've got this definition from Burroughs. Could someone read it uh, right there on the page? It's uh, the definition that he gave that we walked through a couple weeks ago. Is there enough in that definition to keep us busy again? Of course there is. I could walk through it slowly and we could spend the entire time, which we did a few weeks ago. This time I'm gonna give you a speeded up version. What I do is I break the thing in half, the definition. It's very thick, filled with doctrine. It's not scripture, but I take the approach of exegesis toward uh, scripture that I do toward this sentence and I just break it in half, okay? The first half has to do with frame of spirit. Christian contentment's a frame of spirit. The second half has to do with God's wise and fatherly disposal. So zero in on frame of spirit and disposal. Those are the keys of understanding the definition. All right, the first is at the frame of spirit. What does that mean? It's an attitude. It's a demeanor. It's a heart state. Okay? So when you think about an attitude or demeanor, as some have said very wisely, you can't change your circumstances, but you can control your attitude. That's what God actually does call on us to do. We can't micromanage our circumstances. We're under such deceptions these days that we can't. And it comes from just sitting in the car and the car is cold and you crank up the heat a little bit. My wife has a Venza, okay? That's what she drives. And, and you can dial in 80 degrees, 81, 77, and you can, you can hit the, the fan. How Do you like a little more fan, a little less? Is it good for you? That's what the circuit board's saying. Are you good? Are you fine? It's like the whole thing's a deception. We then take that to everything in our lives and think we can climate control everything. And if every single thing in our lives is climate controlled, then we'll be happy. You will therefore not be happy. God will see to it, actually, that you're not happy. He wants to wean you off of climate control. And look, I'm not saying don't turn the heat on in your car. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is it can be deceptive in thinking that you have that kind of power. Most people around the world don't, aren't even deceived in this way. They know they don't have control over these things. They know that in rainy season it's going to rain and it might flood and they can't control it at all. But we think, you know, we have, we have kind of power and control that we don't have. Anyway, so it's a frame of spirit. It's an attitude. It's a demeanor, a state of the soul, a frame of spirit. That's what he says. Then he gives us that four, those four definitions or four, sorry, um, adjectives. Sweet, what are the orders? Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. It's a sweet frame of spirit. What does that mean to you folks? A sweet frame of spirit. I actually have known a number of men and women that I think have modeled this for me consistently. And I think you know them too. I don't want to say their names right now because then they might lose it. All right. You know, it's like, I know a really humble man. You are the most humble man you know. I know. It's like, really? You really think so? I really do. Wow. That's great. Yes. It's the rare jewel of Christian contentment we're looking at today. It is rare. So, but I think there are people in our lives that actually seem to have learned this secret too. I don't think it's so rare that, that we would never see it in a lifetime, but I think we just need to know. That's a great question, Lynn, for sure. So sweet, uh, what I tended to do as I taught is opposed to bitter or sour. So a bitter person is just unforgiving. They're looking at the past, they can't forgive. They're just bitter, bitter person. You don't want to be around a person like that. Um, sour, I think, might be like I've said before, a sour disposition, an Eeyore type person, very gloomy, very negative. One looks back to the past badly, unforgiving. The other looks at the future badly. Nothing good's ever going to happen. It never does. Well, that's the opposite. This person, they are sweet about the past and they're sweet about the present and they're sweet about the future. And you just want to be around a sweet person like that. Male or female does not matter. They have a sweet spirit. All right. And then the second word is that it's inward. It's not an acting job. We're not acting happy. Okay. We are genuinely at peace with God and genuinely happy in the Lord. So there's an inward work and it's quiet as opposed to, and we're going to have a whole morning on the negative side of murmuring and complaining because it's such a problem in the Christian life. And it is convicting to go over it. But if you, if you were to say to the Lord, Oh God, would you open my eyes to all the ways I complain against you in a day, in a week? Open my eyes. And he may well answer that prayer. And it's very convicting. It's like, wow, am I a complainer? How did that even happen that I'm such a complainer? But this person is quiet under God's hand. They're quiet under God's will. There's a quietness to them. 
And then it says gracious. That's a key word. Gracious meaning it can only be affected by the sovereign grace of God. This is not something you, need, you can drum up. You're like, well, then why even come to this class? Well, keep, keep in mind, God is a God of means. And by getting good, sound teaching on a Christian topic like this, it opens up an avenue of grace where you, it sets your heart longing. And it sets your heart asking and studying. And those are means of grace. And then what do you know, five years, ten years, or even five weeks, you're starting to show yourself more and more content because you actually didn't know it was an issue. Now you see that it is, and you start making it a prayer uh, pattern of your life, and you start resolving, I don't want to be a complainer anymore. I want to be quiet under your hand. I want, And then, lo and behold, God, God works in you. But what I'm saying is, big picture, what this Puritan is saying is, this is nothing you can do on your own. You have to have God work this in you by sovereign grace. So that's the first half. It's a frame of spirit that's described in that way. The second half is God's wise and fatherly disposal. Now, we spent an entire class last time that we met, three weeks ago, I think, on providence. The whole thing comes down to the sovereign will of God. God has a will for your life, and it is meticulous and detailed. He figured every single second, every moment out. He knows better than we do that that the universe is made up of of atoms, that the tapestry of, of history is made up of moments. He knows the significance of small things, of minute things, better than we do. And he's got everything figured out. Obviously, this is a mystery. How does free will fit into that? How are decisions? How do, I mean, it's hard to figure out, but it's biblically true. It's just as true. And so we spent a whole Sunday morning on providence. But God's disposal is what God has decided about you. Day of your birth, day of your death, and everything in between. Who you'll marry, how many kids you'll have, the gender of the kids, their names, everything. It's incredible. All of that is part of God's plan. Imagine the alternative. Some of it is part of God's plan. I mean, suppose you knew that 80% of what happened in the world was part of God and the rest God has no control over it and is basically he's, he's as whatever about it as you are. What would that do to your worldview? The 80-20 thing. God's sovereign in charge of 80% of it. Jim, what do you think? I think mentally the 20% will start getting bigger and bigger all the time. It's like, well, that's not God's will and neither is that or that other, you know. So you'll start to redefine God's will as whatever's pleasing to you, right? Whatever fits your plan. So, no, I mean, the Bible says everything, and I'm not minimizing the suffering. Believe me, I, it's, it's hard to understand how God could be in this or in that when it's so extreme, the kind of suffering that comes on people he loves. And he does not minimize that. But at any rate, God's disposal, that's what we're talking about. His disposal is his decree concerning you. But look how Burroughs describes it, wise and fatherly disposal. All right, what do those words mean to you? This is all review, but what does wise and fatherly mean to you? His decree, his decision concerning you, that's his disposal. What does wise and fatherly mean? Just take wise, okay? It's right. There's wisdom to it, as opposed to foolishness or stupid, you know, or whatever, something like that. No, there's a wisdom to what God does. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you ever feel like you want to give God some advice concerning your, your life? that you've got a better way of doing things than he apparently seems to have here. But, but that's arrogant, isn't it? That to have that attitude that you know better than God, it is, we're so arrogant concerning that. That's what Job has to receive from God at the end of that book. Remember those last three chapters? What's going on there? When God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and says, effectively, where were you when I did X? What is he doing there? What's he saying to Job? I, yeah, I don't need your help to run the universe. Like, you were born yesterday and you know, you know nothing. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's pretty rough counseling there. I mean, here's a man that's lost all his children and all that, but God knows what we can handle. And he knew that he, Job needed to be talked to like that. And it just healed him. It just healed him. It's like the best moment of his life is when God talked to him. It's like, wow, I've heard of you by ear, but now my eye has seen you and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. It's just such a healing thing. I'm not going to question you ever again. It's just a beautiful thing. So there's a wisdom to it. So I love that wise disposal. God's, everything God decrees is wise. Everything. But along with that is the word fatherly. Remember how I, I uh, compared that to kingly. Kingly would be right. It's biblical and accurate. Burroughs could have chosen kingly. But remember what I said. I said the king does what's best for the kingdom and doesn't worry that much about what it does to individual soldiers, let's say, or individual servants. 
Some of them are expendable, honestly, that the whole kingdom may survive. We understand that. We, we respect a king like that. If there's a threat, he's going to send out soldiers. Some of them are going to die. We get, we get that. Kingly would be fine. But what about the word fatherly? What does that say to you? I love you. I care about you. I'm going to do what's best for you. The father does what's best for his children. Not necessarily what the children want. We are, we are parents. We know exactly what we're talking about there. But wise and fatherly means he has made up his mind concerning you, and it's a wise plan, and it's fatherly. He's tenderly concerned about you. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Christian contentment does what in relation to that? It freely submits to it and delights in it. All right, let's take freely submits first. Topher, what does that mean to you? Freely submits. You're yielding to it. The alternative would be rebellion. Let's be honest. The alternative to submission when it comes to a father or a king is rebellion. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to rebel. I'm not fighting him. I'm going to freely submit. I'm not going to feel like I'm under constraint here. I'm going to give myself freely to my father. So I'm freely submitting to it. And what else? This is maybe the hardest word of all in the whole definition. Freely submits to and what? Delights in it. Wow. Everything? Well, look at the end. In every condition. I'm going to delight in every condition of my life. Now, you might say, this is way too hard. How could this even occur? So how do we actually delight in every condition of our life? Delight in it. First of all, what does that word mean to you? Delight. And that's why, Lynn, I really have to say that's why it's a secret to be learned. That's why Burroughs said it's a rare jewel. Some of us go through our whole lives. Honestly, you can go through your whole Christian life and not learn the secret live like none of these things are true, and go to heaven. But what Burroughs is saying is there's a better journey to heaven than that. There's a more fruitful journey to heaven than that. And ministry opportunities, witnessing opportunities will open up for you. You're, you're just going to be, I mean, just straight out by definition, you're going to be happier. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? You're going to be happier along the way. Why be unhappy going to heaven? But so many people are. I would say the overwhelming majority of Christians are unhappy going to heaven because this is such a rare thing. So, delight. Now, let me ask a question. I think this will open our eyes to it. Will you delight in the details of your life when you are in heaven? When you look back on the details of your life, will you delight then in what God did? You know you will. You will delight in every detail of your life when you get to heaven? I tell you, you will. And the more you meditate, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to be unhappy in heaven. So I will delight in everything God did to get not just me, but all of my brothers and sisters to heaven. I'll delight in the whole beautiful system of providence that got such a vast multitude of sinners out of this terrible world up into that beautiful heaven. I will delight in everything it took to get them there. I will. So can I delight now, though? You actually can. You actually can delight now in what God is doing because you know in the end, in the end, it's going to produce something beautiful. And frankly, that's how you do it. Remember how it said in Hebrews 12 that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame? He delighted in the cross, though he shrank back from the cup in Gethsemane. He was sweating great drops of blood saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. We understand we're talking about a hard thing. But in the end, there's joy in the cross. And what is it? Us, multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's worth doing. At a much smaller level, your sufferings are like that. It's worth it. That's the point. All right, this is all intro. I know what you're saying. You're, th- you're saying, Pastor, you only have to pre- prepare two-thirds of a lesson every week. You get the same thing week after week. Well, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to keep doing it because, first of all, I don't think Burroughs' definition is easy, and I think it's forgettable. And also just part of, our, uh, part of teaching is repetition. It just it takes a while. And when you walk through this definition, I'm not tired of it, and I've been looking at it every, you know, almost every day for three years. And you know what the Lord's saying to me as I write this book, which is due on March 1st? And I'm learning to be content about that date. (laughs) March 1st. But, you know, to say, I don't think that God gave me this assignment because I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Talk to my family, some of which is here right now. Um, Has your dad learned the secret? Well, I'm not going to throw him under the bus. Will you? (laughs) 
no. But I haven't learned, but I, I love this topic. I love it more now than I did three years ago. I see how vital and vibrant and helpful this would be in my life, how much of a better witness I would be. I want it. And I want you to want it. So it's worth going through. All right. And this is about what Burroughs says next. Now, I would not have gone here next in the book, but I'm going to trust this Puritan, you know, pastor. I would have held the practical, how do we attain this till the very end of the book? All right. So we're going to probably do my own version of practical, how do we attain it at the end of the class? But this was the next thing in the book after the definition. And so he probably just knows better than I do. People are saying, okay, you got me salivating. You got me wanting it. How do I do it? And that's where we're at right now. Could someone read this Burroughs quote under the mystery of contentment? So yeah, you're saying to me, Burroughs is saying, you're saying to me, okay, sounds good. I'm in, but I don't think it's even possible. I don't think it's even possible. And he says it actually is, but you have to learn the mystery of it. You have to learn what he calls the art of it. What, is he, what do you think he means by the art of it? Or maybe a similar word would be skill. How is there an art or a skill to Christian contentment? Okay, I've heard that before. 10,000 hours. What, what's that? I've heard that before. What is that? All right, so Luke, let me ask. Are we going to get the 10,000 hours of practice? I think, I think it takes more than that. All right, more than that. But I'm just saying, is it going to come? Well, look at the definition. Look at Burroughs' definition. Look at the very last few words. What is it talking about? In every, in every condition. Are you going to be in every condition over the next 10,000 hours? There you go. You're going to get your chance. You get to practice this every day because it covers both the good things and the hard things. So yeah, you're going to get the 10,000 hours, but Luke, you're saying you actually have to be content for the 10,000 hours. Yeah, now there's the rub. But here's the thing. You're going to get an opportunity. I would just lift this up as a question saying, Lord, am I content right now? Have I shown myself to be content today? Am I content right now in this condition or this situation? And if the Holy Spirit convicts you that you're not, then repent. Say, Lord, I really should be content. By the way, this is commanded. All right. Paul says, I've learned the secret of it. But Hebrews 13.5 says, be content with what you have. Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So there it is. It's a command in Hebrews 13. All right. No escape now. This is not an option in the Christian life. This is actually commanded. He wants you to be content in any and every situation. He's commanding. Now, one of the beautiful things about sanctification, one of the things you learn about the Christian life, all of God's commands should and could be seen as promises. If he commands something of you, he is effectively promising to work it in you. He will not leave you as an orphan. He will come to you. He will help you. So if he commands contentment of you, which he does, then you can take that command back to him as a, as a prayer, prayer and say, Lord, do this then. This is just right from uh, Augustine's Confessions. Give what you command, then command whatever you will. So what he's saying to God is he's saying, if you give me the thing you're commanding, then you can command me actually to be perfect. You can command me to fly. You can command me to ascend off the surface of the earth and go through a doorway into the heavenly realms. Oh, wait, that happened to John. You can make me do miraculous things like walking in water. Oh, wait, that happened to Peter. If you give me the power to do amazing things, I can do them. Right? So you could say, all right, you have commanded me in Hebrews 13 to be content with what I have. Then give me contentment, please. But you're just going to say, am I content? So you've got to learn the art of it, the skill of it. And so as Luke was saying, 10,000 hours of contentment. And then you could actually say, if you get like your next 10,000 waking hours now, friends, sleep does not count. All right, the next 10,000 waking hours, if you could actually say, and the Spirit testify with your spirit that it's true, you were content according to this definition, then you will be able to say like Paul did, I've learned the secret. All right, so let's walk on and see how Burroughs says we may attain it. First, a Christian is content yet unsatisfied. Wait a minute. What would, what would you say would be a synonym for unsatisfied? I'm an unsatisfied person. Discontent. <laughs> How can that be? Well, let's, let's wait. Let's hear him out. Maybe he's got a point to make. A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented of any lo with any low condition that he has in the, in the world. Yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. Wow. He is contented if he has but a crust, but bread and water. Yet if God should give unto him kingdoms and empires and all the world to rule, he would not be satisfied with that. What does he mean by that? 
Before I go on and support it with scripture, what do you think Burroughs means by that? To be discontent. The richer you are, you, you know, you're more insecure. Yeah. All right. So I want to pick up on that and I want to bring in a C.S. Lewis quote that I've used before. C.S. Lewis said, he who has Christ and all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. He who has Christ and all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. What is he saying about the world? It's nothing. It's a complete nothing. That's what he's saying. That's right. This world is a whisper. It's a feather. It's a nothing. It's dust on the scales. All the nations are like dust on the scales and drop from a bucket. And so here, here's the question. This will bring light to what Burroughs is saying. Would you trade your soul for all the world? Now, wait a minute. Now I know what you're talking about. So somebody read the, the quote here from Matthew 16. All right. So what Jesus is saying is your soul is worth more than what? The whole world. Remember how Satan tempted Jesus, giving him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and splendor? And Jesus said, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He will not trade his allegiance to God for all the world. He is our model in this. So therefore, the Christian just looks at the world differently now. We look at the world in all its glory and splendor differently. We're saying, you know, not impressed. I don't want that. I don't want the world. I want Christ. I want my soul in a right relationship with Christ. And the world can do what it's going to do. Now, in, in a few minutes, we're going to find out what God's going to do to this world. In Revelation 16, it's scary. And we start to realize what, is, what the future of this world is. And so what Burroughs is saying is, I'm not content with the world. The world can't actually make me content. No small part of it, even all of it. I, I'm not content with it. That's not it. So Jesus makes it plain that our souls are worth more than all the material possessions of the world, and God is worth more than that. So we know that our eternal inheritance has to be vastly greater than the world's delights. Burroughs said this, here is the mystery of it. Though, he, though his, sorry, his heart is so enlarged, that the enjoyments of all the world and 10,000 worlds cannot satisfy him for his portion. Yet he has a heart quieted under God's disposal if he gives him but bread and water. So here's a very content man who's dissatisfied eternally or ultimately. That's what we mean. That's the key. Would you take this world as your eternal portion? And honestly, we wouldn't. This is, this is actually part of the reason why we have trouble thinking about heaven. Is there any one thing you do in this world that you would be content to do eternally? I'd be like, that would, after a while, turn almost into hell. It's like, well, I like, well, I like, all right, I like eating pizza and watching football. All right, you now will do it for the next million eons. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> no, 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 you're never going to get fat. I'm like, I don't care. I mean, after a while, I'm like, okay, something different, something else. So we start to realize even the things we like the best in this world cannot really satisfy our souls. What we must have is we have to have God. All right, so what Burroughs says is there's a vast difference between a Christian's passage and his portion. All right, this is old style language, but pas passage is uh, basically what it takes, the, the fare, the money you pay to get on a ship and go somewhere. So you're, you paid your, your, your fee and you're on the ship and you're heading you can imagine, let's say, the, uh, the pilgrims across the North Atlantic, you know, and, you're, and, and it's just like, uh, can we improve your, um, your food here a little bit? Is there anything we can do to make you more comfortable? You know, like you're, I'm not going to go into details, but you are having, what is it, mal de mer, you know, um, you're vomiting, and uh, you're down below deck, and it's not a place, it's like, just get me there. <laughs> I'm not looking for an improvement of my passage here. You're like, can we look at, should we look at our time in the world that way? Let me speak a little more biblically. Should we look at our time in the world as though we are aliens and strangers here just passing through? Yes. That's how you should look at it. Your portion is what you will get. What, you, what is yours? What is your inheritance? Let's take the word portion and set it aside and use the word inheritance. Is there anything in this world that could serve as your eternal inheritance? The answer is no. Nothing in this world could be, should be my eternal inheritance. Only God. God is my portion. He is my cup. He is what I get. He's the only thing that can satisfy me for eternity. So that's what he says. Someone read this Burroughs quote, A Little in the World. 
So just make a difference between passage and portion. If that archaic language isn't helpful to you, just say, in this world, I am an alien and stranger. Where I'm going, that's my inheritance. That's where I'm heading. And I, I don't want anything, um, you know. Honestly, the riches and the pr uh, privileges and different things of this world, they're all stewardship matters. They're given to you temporarily to use for the kingdom. That's what they are. And they come with a string attached and you have to give the king an account. So you're like, I would like to give the king a much bigger account and a far bigger account on Judgment Day. Really? I remember having a discussion with a guy about the tri-state lottery in Kentucky when I was at Southern Seminary. Okay? It had reached record. This is the kind of thing where if nobody wins it, it gets bigger. And then nobody wins it for months, it gets bigger and bigger. I'll never forget that. All right? People were standing in line. Lines were going around the corner at the convenience stores. I was laughing out loud, I who have been mathematically trained. I'm laughing and laughing. Oh, let's just take it simply, okay? Apparently, $160 million wasn't enough for you. You are holding out for $420. I'm coming for $420 million. $160 doesn't even bother me. I'm not even thinking about that. It's like, you see, you start to laugh. It's like, apparently this wasn't a thing a month ago. But now you're motivated. Well, you look around you. You realize how many more people are motivated. You know that you, what chance you have. One guy said, "Did you buy a ticket?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, you know why not?" I said, "Because, you know, I have no chance of winning." He said, "Well, you have no chance, and you bought a ticket." I said, "Did you buy a ticket?" I didn't buy a ticket. I bought ten tickets. I said, "You have ten times zero chance of winning." <laughs> Come on, it's applied mathematics. But we got to the point. I said, "Well, why didn't you buy a ticket?" I said, "It's not a matter of statistics. It's not, let's just go to the point. I don't want to win the money." I don't want the money. He's like, now I know you're crazy. It's like, no, I don't, because I will have to give an account on Judgment Day for every dollar. And I think it will tempt me, and I will spend some of it at least poorly. So just, do you really want more and more of the world? Whatever God gives you, he's going to demand an account for it. So that's what he's saying. A soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing but God. These things don't satisfy anyway. Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Christ is everything. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. So we go through the world longing and yearning for heaven. If you're healthy, there's a longing and a yearning for heaven. Discontent in one sense, because we have not yet arrived but content that we will someday at last come into our eternal inheritance. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan speaks of a place called Beulah Land. And Beulah Land is a place of foretaste of heavenly joy. It's a matter of, of God pouring out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You get a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Could someone read this quote for us from Pilgrim's Progress? All right, so let me translate this into simple language. What Bunyan is talking about is in the Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, foretaste of heavenly happiness. They're, these are things, experiences that Christians have had, where the Lord pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us, where in Ephesians 4, Paul prays, uh, or Ephesians 3, sorry, Paul prays that they would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and that they would know that love that surpasses knowledge, so that they would be filled, listen to this, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's like, wow, has that ever happened to me? filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You're just overflowing with happiness in Christ's love. That's what Bunyan is describing here in kind of like agricultural language, like you're in a, a fragrant garden with fruit trees everywhere and you can just pluck a succulent piece of fruit off and eat it. And it's just, that's a metaphor for satisfaction in God. So let me ask a question. Why does increased heavenly mindedness even a, a strong heavenly yearning lead to greater Christian contentment. So you're like homesick for heaven. You have foretaste of that. You're yearning for it more than ever before. How does that actually feed Christian contentment? So, all right. So we're in the how does this happen practical section. His first answer is labor to be more discontent with this world and more yearning for heaven. Be more heavenly minded. I think that's just biblically true. Secondly, uh, the, Christian content, the Christian who is content comes to contentment by subtraction. Subtraction. So Burroughs said not by, uh, so much by adding what he would have or to what he has, not by adding more to his condition, but rather by subtracting from his desires. You, I mean, the key is desire less. Just have less ambitions for your earthly condition. 
all right, by subtracting from your desires, so as to make your desires and your circumstances even and equal. So I'm going to just keep leveling off my desires until they equal my circumstances. I want what I have and I have what I want. And that's a good situation. That's what he's talking about here. The way to be rich then is not by increasing wealth, but by diminishing our desires. I'm sorry, I skipped a, a portion. Burroughs says, um, a carnal heart knows no way to be contented but this. I have such and such possessions, and if I have this added to them and the other comfort added that I have not now, then I should be contented. That's the only way the world knows contentment. It's like, I'm not content right now. That's, all right, let's go to the mall. Or let's, you know, do some online shopping. Let's go to Amazon. Let's find something. And when I order it, when, I, when it gets shipped, when it finally gets here, then I'll be happy. Well, no, it's not. And so the idea is by adding more and more, that's how the world seeks contentment. And it's just, it's on a treadmill. It's not ever going to find it. The world is infinitely deceived in thinking that contentment lies in having more than we already have. The way to be rich then is not by increasing wealth, but by diminishing our desires. Certainly that man or woman is rich who have all of their desires satisfied. That's amazing, isn't it? So how do you do it? How do you subtract from your desires? It's like, well, how, I mean, is that even possible? How do you subtract from your desires? Yeah, absolutely. I wanna, I wanna put those two together. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's desire language, isn't it? So you're gonna be thinking about it. So first of all, then, don't see that thing as a treasure. The thing that you're wrongly desiring actually isn't a treasure. It's actually probably doing your soul some harm. It's not a treasure. If by desiring it, you're getting sicker spiritually, if by desiring it, you're becoming more covetous and more worldly, it's an enemy to your soul. It's not a treasure. So by seeing it, as Jack was saying, seeing it in light of eternity, seeing the thing itself, it's like, I don't need that. And if I'm set in my heart on that a lot, then it's an idol. So identifying it properly and then replacing it, saying, all right, then I'm, the answer is not desire nothing. The answer is, oh, God, please help me desire Christ more. Help me desire God more or the word more. Is that what you're saying? Supplanting it? Good. Very good. Anything more on subtraction, getting rid of desires? Well, you're talking the language of contentment. And also you can see right away, we've not gotten to this in the class, but we can jump there right now, how much of a platform for witnessing this is. I mean, if you actually are content in, a, in your company situation, I think you'll find a good percentage of your coworkers aren't. <laughs> I found that. I worked for 10 years in industry. It's like, for me, the hardest day of the year, one of the hardest, was the first day back after New Year's, whenever that was. All right, so January 2nd or January 3rd. No one wanted to be there. That was a long day. Bunch of discontent people. <laughs> so imagine how much you can shine like a light in a dark place. That's a great, great answer. Right, let's keep going. Burroughs says, not just by subtracting from your desires, but by adding an additional burden to yourself, you can become content. What burden is he talking about? Well, let's look what he says. The world thinks the way to contentment and affliction is to be rid of your burdens, that is to have afflictions removed. No, actually, the way to contentment is to add another burden beyond your present difficult circumstances. That is to labor to load and burden your heart with your sin. Now, this is typical Puritan language, and we tend to react to it. It's like, that's wrong. I have had so many discussions with people about these kinds of things. They say, that is absolutely wrong. Christ has freed me from shame, freed me from guilt. It's like, yeah, but they're, they're forgetting. There's numbers of places in Scripture that talk about how helpful it is to remember that you have been forgiven much. And that's what he's talking about here that you should uh, burden your heart with your sin. The heavier the burden of your sin is to your heart, frankly, the lighter will become your affliction to your heart and you'll be content. All right, um, before we get on to it as well with my soul, there are healthy ways to do that and unhealthy ways. I, I acknowledge that. What you should do is, is, first of all, greatly increase the sense of the 10,000 talents anyway. All right, the parable of the 10,000 talents, remember that? Where the guy owed the king the gross national product of the Roman Empire, remember that? It's like, gee, I'm a little in debt. No, <laughs> I owe $7 trillion. Uh, be patient, I'll pay, I'll pay you back. The king really could have laughed in his face at that point. You don't have $7 trillion. How are you going to pay that back? Can't be paid. That's the parable. That's what God has forgiven you. Does the king want the servant to remember that in the parable? He does. In what case, in what situation does he want him to remember that? 
when the other servant owed him a hundred denarii, which is about a third of a year's wage. It's a good chunk of money, but it's not 10,000 talents. He wants him to remember all that sin. He said, I forgave all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Remember? Remember that you've been forgiven that much. You owe it to everyone that sins against you to forgive them. This is the consistent teaching in the New Testament. If you forgive others their sins, then your Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It's a basic condition of the Christian life. So we're supposed to remember how much we've been forgiven from. So don't fall for that, oh, I'm free from any memories of my sins. Christ has set me free. That is not a biblical way to think. There is a right aspect to that, but there's some wrong aspects too. Yes, we're free from guilt and condemnation and we've been set free, that's true. But you're supposed to remember what was done for you. We're not supposed to have amnesia about that. You actually had a savior. Secondly, you still have indwelling sin, right? We've, we still are battling sins and we need to actually remember and say we are not doing awesomely in our sanctification. So we should be humble by that. And so actually what Burroughs is saying, the more aware you are of what a savior you have, and how much he's forgiven you, and how much he continues to forgive you day after day and cover your sins and all that, the happier you're going to be. Why is that? Why is that? Why would that make you actually happier if in a healthy way you remember all the sins you've been forgiven from? If you really believe that, if you're going to be happy. Some people say it as a slogan, better than I deserve. But do you really believe that? Is it true? Is whatever happens to you on earth better than you deserve? It is. Yeah, go ahead. I think it, we, we are so desirous to even protect our children from any bad thing. And it's like God's not so desirous of that. Um, if you look at Mount Sinai and you're there and the children of Israel come to the base of the mountain and there's an earthquake and there's fire on top, the top of the mountain is like a, a cauldron, a, a flame. And there's this voice so loud that everyone that heard it trembled with fear. What's God after there? What's his goal? What's he trying for? He's doing the earthquake. He's doing the fire on top of the mountain. He's doing the loud voice. What's his goal? Yeah, there's one word. I would think one word. What's he seeking in the hearts of the people there? Fear. There's no doubt about it. He wants the fear. James, go ahead, brother. Absolutely. You can think, I, I'll say this really quickly. There was a guy in the book of Jeremiah named Baruch who was Jeremiah's secretary, and he wrote the whole book of Jeremiah, and then the wicked king burned it line by line. Remember that? So God told him, write it again. Oh, this is back before the days of backup files, just so you know. It, uh, like the book of Jeremiah didn't exist on planet Earth. The only copy there was was just burned. But it existed in the mind of God, and we're fine, we'll just write it again. Well, Baruch started to complain. He said, you've added burden upon burden to me. What God says to me, what God says to Baruch is he says, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't seek them. But I'll tell you this, wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Wow, what a word. I mean, you stop complaining at that point, because you know what's going to happen? The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to kill a lot of people. The sword, famine, and plague will take out a lot of Jews, but I'm going to let you survive. Well, that's a small case of what James is saying. I'm going to let you survive eternally. Imagine in the midst of your complaining, right? The Lord dispatches a holy angel and he says, the Lord has sent me to tell you, you're not going to hell. That's all. Bye. And out he goes. Do you, do you think that that would be enough to get you to stop complaining? It's about the same message. Amen. You have been delivered from eternal death. Rejoice. And, and I, think, I think what we are, we are arrogant. We forget who we were. We're, we're sinners saved by grace. And so in Horatio Spafford, I'm not going to give you the whole story there, but you know, he lost, I think, two daughters uh, at a certain place. And he wrote, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Second line, when sorrows like sea billows roll. That's any and every situation. Whatever my lot, this is the language of Christian contentment, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Third verse, it's like we wouldn't do this, but it's so therapeutic. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. So, it's like, well, that, I mean, why, you lost two daughters. I mean, you should be bitter against God. I'm not bitter against God. He sent his son to die for me. Get nailed to the cross for my sin. And so, and then he ends, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. She's like, is that the way that we get therapy from extreme suffering in this world? Yes. Remember that you were saved by grace. Your sins have been forgiven. So that's what Burroughs is talking about. Remember that. 
He talks about load up, all right? So that means meditate on. Say, I was like Paul does it, and if you think you shouldn't do it, just read 1 Timothy 1. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He names what he was, right? But God showed mercy to me as an example of his extreme patience. So you look at that, and it's just, yeah, do that. So obviously it may seem strange to us to do this, but this is the only way we can actually, like Sarah Edwards said, kiss the rod. The rod is because we still have indwelling sin. He's still disciplining us. He's still treating us like a father, training us. We're not out of the woods yet. We're not in safety yet. We're not in heaven yet. So he's going to lay the rod on you. He's going to train you like a father does his children. Kiss it. Delight in it. Need it. That's what he's saying. So add to yourself uh, the burden and the afflictions, all right? Um, I'll tell you what, let's finish uh, this one point and then we'll, we'll bring, come back to this next time. Burroughs gives excellent advice to a suffering married couple. Quotes, this is Burroughs. Many times in a family when any affliction befalls them, oh, what an amount of discontent there is between man and wife. If they are crossed in their possessions at land or have bad news from across the sea, or if those whom they trusted are ruined and the like, or perhaps something in the family causes strife between man and wife in reference to the children or servants, and there is nothing but quarreling and discontent among them. Now they are many times burdened with their own discontent and perhaps will say to one another, it is very uncomfortable for us to live so discontented as we do. But have you ever tried this way, husband and wife? Have you ever got alone and said, come, oh, let us go and humble our souls before God together. Let us go into our chamber and humble our souls before God for our sin, by which we have abused those mercies which God has taken from us, and we have provoked God against us. Oh, let us charge ourselves with sin and be humbled before the Lord together. Have you tried such a way as this? It's a good question for spouses that are having conflicts. Have you tried to do this? All right, just to finish the quote. Oh, that you would find the cloud would be taken away. You would find that the cloud would be taken away and the sun would shine in upon you and you would have a great deal more contentment than ever you had. So what he's saying is, married couple, next time that afflictions and difficulties are causing you to quarrel with each other, what, what advice is he giving such a couple there? What should they do? Yeah. Repent. Get, get down on your knees, the two of you, and repent. <laughs> okay? Repent of your sins. And what does Burroughs say will happen if you genuinely do that? Clouds are going to be lifted. Not your circumstances. Those will still be there. But the clouds of murmuring and complaining and discontent and frustration with God and all, it'll go away. So this is paradoxical, but I think it's just biblically true. So spend time confessing sin, spend time understanding that you are a sinner saved by grace, and it's a, it's a path to Christian contentment. Okay? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.